From the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. This week, we re- welcome Mark Bohannon from Red Hat. He is uh, Red Hat's uh, VP of Global Public Policy and Government Affairs. Um, but before we get to Mark, I did want to flag for you that Jim Whitehurst, who's the CEO of Red Hat, will be at 1776 on March 6th at 6 p.m., so at the end of this podcast, I leave my email address. If you'd like an invite, drop me an email. So with that, we'll go to our guest this week, Mark Bohannon, talking open source software and how he got into this racket. Mark Bohannon, welcome to 14th and G. CR, it's great to be here. I often start these podcasts with a little bit of background. So where'd you grow up and how'd you find your way into public policy? Great question. Uh, I grew up in Austin, Texas. Growing up in Austin when it was truly weird back in the 60s and 70s. (laughs) Not this pretend weird uh, that it likes to think of it itself now. When I came, uh, decided to go to college, um, came to debate at Georgetown, stayed very active in public policy issues. Uh, then got involved in campaigns and uh, advocacy. So that's kind of the trick for how I made it to public policy. And so you, you, you graduate from college, you go do some campaigns, and, you know, uh, you end up in government? Yeah. So uh, after college, I spent a few years working for a state and local uh, public policy advocacy group. Uh, did do the, you know, required, let's go to law school, get that ticket, uh, during that time, I was deputy director of Senator Kennedy's political action committee, and then uh, went on to go work on the Dukakis presidential campaign. That uh, worked out great. It did. Were it you was, the tank guy? Uh, <laughs> I, I can definitely say I was not the <laughs> tank guy. But after the can, after the primary went down, and uh, worked with Paul Kirk, Wendy Sherman, doing campaign '88 coordinated campaign. Uh, then stayed on working for Ron Brown when he was chairman of the DNC, and then went over with Ron when he became Secretary of Commerce. Yeah, I find that most people have either gone from uh, gone through campaigns or gone right to the hill and kind of done that route. Exactly. Uh, right. Your your background's much similar to mine. So, in as far as stops along the way, um, you've done some uh, association mm-hmm. as well, work yeah, as absolutely well. Absolutely right. So, can I just ask about that? What's different about being an association versus being at Red Hat? And then we'll get into what you're doing at Red Hat. Sure. So Red Hat uh, is a publicly traded company. We're driven by making sure we, you know, keep our shareholders happy. We continue to have revenue. We continue to grow. Trade Association has a broader perspective representing the entire industry. So I spent about 10 years as general counsel and senior vice president of a uh, large association of uh, software and digital content companies working on issues like privacy, cybersecurity, uh, e-commerce, uh, trade issues. And there, my role was not about one company. It was about trying to look at what what was the best interest of the industry, bringing people together, sometimes using a two-by-four to bring them all together. <laughs> yes. But of course, when you go to a single company, you've got a little bit different you know, perspective here. You've got a 
look out for the business model. You got to look out for the particular interests, but also remembering to work with other companies who have your similar interest. So you're teeing me up here perfectly. So so why don't you talk a little bit about Red Hat and and um, specifically your role, and then um, we'll, we'll we'll keep going from there. So kind of sure. uh, what's the company do, and what's your footprint uh, uh, globally, and also here in DC. Red Hat uh, is a classic startup story. Started off in an apartment in Durham, North Carolina, doing services for uh, computer companies and software. Uh, Then uh, got into distributing open source software, and I'll explain what that is in a moment. Went public in 98, headquartered in Raleigh, North Carolina. In fact, if you ever get down to Raleigh, you'll see the Red Hat Tower about uh, five blocks from the governor's mansion and and the legislature. When I joined in 2010, we were around 3,700 employees, give or take, and around 800, 850 million in revenue. Uh, We're now at almost 10,500 employees, and in our last earnings statement, uh, our revenue totals 2.4 billion. So what do we do? We are the world's most successful company delivering open source software solutions. We are uh, enterprise focused. Okay, so, so give me give, give me that in English. Uh, in English, if you've ever heard of something called Linux, <laughs> yeah, our version and distribution of Linux is the most widely used among critical infrastructure, DOD, major. We're in every major cabinet agency. We're in ninety percent of the Fortune five hundred. As I said to my ninety year old mother, we put the good housekeeping seal of approval on the software that you use. So our model is a subscription model, which is a little bit different than the rest of the software industry, which is based on a license. Sure, right. But the industry is moving to subscription. Uh, many of our, any, many of the better known consumer brands in software are moving to a subscription model. Why and is that? Is it give them a little more flexibility to get newer, more updated stuff? Or partially, it's about the move to a more distributed way of delivering software. The days of getting software on a CD are just long gone. So most enterprises, most consumers now want to download their software or use it in a way that it can be readily updated. Uh, It's also about how applications, tools are migrating from the desktop to a more cloud-oriented environment. Right. So while Linux is our best-known product, we are increasingly making headways into what we call emerging markets, whether it be in the area of middleware, which runs applications for companies, the cloud, uh, OpenStack is the best-known open-source project in this area, and our version of OpenStack is increasingly used uh, in government and industry. So we're now becoming more diversified. Uh, We've actually been diversified, but the rate of growth of those emerging technologies has exceeded about 40% in recent quarters. Oh, wow. So um, when people talk about, I'm, I'm going to go to, to, to amateur hour here for just a second. So when people talk about open source and yes. middleware and things like that, what's it mean for the end user? What's it? How's that right. actually work? So remember that our end user is not really the individual consumer. So our customers are fairly well uh, placed IT professionals who are dealing with large scale enterprises. Of course. There are, there are exceptions to that. CIOs and things like that? CIOs, CTOs. Uh, you know, our bread and butter are financial services, telecos, um, uh, utilities, U.S. government. Sure. Um, so what you get from open source, which is a little bit different than the uh, typical proprietary model where a company will develop software in their lab and throw it across the transom. Sure. We are active in what we call communities or community projects where that project can be used Uh, by any variety, so long as you adhere to the open source license. We take what is an open source project, run it through certifications. 
We make sure that our customers have up-to-date versions, that we let them know about vulnerabilities, fixes in a way that satisfies their critical mission needs and what we do. Yep. So the difference in open source, it's the collaborative approach. Mm-hmm. Um, we contribute back up to the project, things that we improve on in terms of some of the open source projects. Sure. And frankly, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, uh, we were, you know, there were still questions about what open source was. Right. I think now it's mainstream and, you know, you walk in, particularly as the older generation of IT professionals begins yep. to move on, you know, it is the way that the new generation of IT developers, administrators are actually using and developing their software themselves. So it's very, it's innately, it's innate to them now. Yeah, no, I, it makes sense. Let's take the shift to, <coughs> to Washington policymakers. Yeah. Um, What's your view on how to, and the company's view on how to how right. to interact with policymakers? And I know that you also have a global portfolio. So, so are you, yeah. you know, kind of how does that work into your into yeah. your mix? So our revenues, roughly give or take on the quarter, sixty percent North America, which does include Canada, uh, about twenty five percent EMEA, and then the remainder being APAC. So obviously, uh, North America is a core, and Europe are our yeah. two largest markets. And of course, you know, EMEA is basically the continent in the UK. Um, you know, policymakers right now want to know what is the most reliable, the most dependable, the most innovative way in which technology can occur. How would you say that um, you mentioned uh, government modernization? Yes. And I know that the White House uh, has the. Office of American Innovation. Right. Um, I'm sure Obama had one of those, and Gore had reinventing government and, and things like that. Where are we in the scale? F- um, you know, we've had the OMB hack a right. while ago. How, how how does the federal government stack up at this point in time? So I think we've made a lot of improvements. Um, you know, GAO does a list of at-risk legacy systems every yep. year. You know, those big, there are some big systems there that continue to be problems. Interestingly, I think, you know, one of the biggest users and surprises a lot of people in the world of open source is the Department of Defense. Oh, it well, actually that's... was one of our earliest customers, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So I think there's making progress, but we can do more. Uh, the recent report that you referred to, CR, by the Office of American Innovation recognized the power of open source. It wasn't a, you know, wave the flag for open source, but many of the tenets of the uh, report reflect open source principles. Sure. Transparency, openness, agility, let's reuse things. This is the kind of thing that the report is emphasizing. Yeah. And I think it's an area where you even go back to, I think, the early days of the Bush II administration, where they were wrestling with what do you do with old legacy IT in the government. This has actually been a relatively bipartisan era of you know, moving to an enterprise-like approach. In the enterprise level, if you are building any new systems, you're doing it based on commodity hardware and open source software. The government is, I think, very much in line with that. And that was the message of the Office of American Innovation Report. Yeah, it's interesting. The reason I asked that is because it is a bipartisan thing. It seems to me like whoever's in charge of government um, kind of kicks the tires on exactly. this every once in a while and says, you know, um, what else we have to do to move forward? And, exactly. and there's also, first of all, the, the whole cybersecurity universe is right. a hot topic. So as we go down this cyber road, your you're folks, because you're able to update things easier, I suspect, it's a little easier to catch and control um, access, cyber attacks, those types of things. But how do we, taking a step back even from Red Hat, like how do we protect our... 
It's a great question. Uh, our info, how do we protect our, our government's information, or are we just always going to be in a constant battle on this one? Certainly, uh, you know, if you think you're secure today, you're not secure tomorrow. <laughs> uh, it's a constant challenge. I think one of the places where there's been a great deal of consistency between the Obama administration and the Trump administration is recognizing you can do all the certifications, you can do all the tests you want to of your products. Uh, you can have the most secure product, but if you do not deal with your business management risk-based kinds of issues, mm-hmm. there's very little that the most secure product is going to do for you. Mm-hmm. So I actually commend both the Obama and the Trump administration for pursuing a risk-based management approach based mm-hmm. on the NIST frameworks. In fact, I was in Brussels last week where they're talking about a uh, Cybersecurity Act that would create this new certification regime for products oh, and the effort to try to get people focused on risk-based management. You know, what are you doing to keep in touch and know where your IT is? What's the legacy of it? Do you have support for it? Are you credentialing the right people to manage that and have access to the data? That is as if not more important than making sure you have the most resilient, trustworthy technology that has been independently reviewed or relied upon. They're both important, but we sometimes think, let's get the technology really secure without thinking about the other pieces. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, um, uh, if you think at some of the some of the major hacks that are public right. involve like, you know, kind of folks folks who are not, who are, who are playing in a sandbox that was built a while ago and now there's a new sandbox that they may or may not be as familiar. No, that's exactly right, CR. If I, if I recall correctly, the Panaman Institute that kind of monitors breaches and the kind of breaches they are. Uh, there was a study they did uh, within the last two years that said that half the breaches were due to individual error. good number of those were intentional, they're <laughs> yeah. malicious. Right, right, right. The others were just stupidity yeah. and accidents. you got to make sure your workforce is trained, that you have systems in place, that you have processes in place that help to manage all of that. And that's really where the Federal Trade Commission has gone and looking at some of its cases. Were you taking the precautions necessary to make sure your administrative systems as well as your technology were up to date? And it's you mentioned NIST before, but it seems like everybody kind of defers to NIST, the NIST principles that I right. think keep evolving a little bit yes. um, as the gold standard or the standard as for, for, as for where folks want to go. Is that... I think that's right. And of course, you know, I, I feel some pride because I was the, my office used to be the chief legal advisor to NIST <laughs> when I was in the government. What they did was it was a recognition, you know, NIST is a very technical yeah. organization. Geeks. And geeks. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but nice geeks. Yes, and exactly. I think it was a recognition by them that they can focus on the best standards, but that there needed to be a broader. And so actually in response to industry, they went through this process uh, of developing a risk management framework, which looked at you know what companies were doing that were cutting edge about uh, managing uh, uh, their vulnerabilities, their risks. Did they have systems in place to mediate those risks if something occurred? And so it's been an iterative process, a very open and transparent process about coming up with a framework, which is now I think in its, I think it's its second update that yeah, they have now right. Uh, right now, and it's really become a recognized global standard for which uh, probably needs to be adapted to each of the, uh, to, to each of sectors. You know, there are mm-hmm. different issues facing the chemical industry than there sure. are, say, transportation. Mm-hmm. Making sure that you bring all the players together. These days, you've got to talk about global players. Yes, of So course. one of the things I was doing in uh, my trip was urging that there be more collaboration between, say, the sectors about what they are looking at, because this is a global problem. It's not just a U.S. problem. It's not just a French problem. It's mm-hmm. not just an Australian problem. The NIST approach really has become, I think, a recognized uh, framework that is 
uh, a living approach. They want to update. I want to consistent with good security. Yeah. Nothing is burnished urn. Uh, let's find out what the issues are and address them through that. Yeah, it just seems having talked to other people both here and elsewhere, it seems to be that people that that's kind of the place people start as a as a as a kind of absolutely where should we begin this process? They start there and they go from there. You mentioned uh, the 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 fact that you know kind of borders don't matter, and this is a global issue here. So um, let's talk about trade a little bit. What's uh-huh. the um, you know, the president has gone down this road of America first. Um, I think a lot of people agree with the theory behind that. I suspect, well, actually, I mean, I suspect in the tech universe, that's a little more complicated just because data is flying all over the place and your customers are not here. Um, you know, kind of what's your thoughts on both how the how the president's taking taking this and also some of the specifics? We've got NAFTA and Chorus and a bunch of other things that are kind of out there. So the in the software industry... We obviously have to deal with a variety of complex issues to get our software across borders. All right. The good news is there aren't any customs duties. Mm-hmm. You know, we resolved that a long time ago, yep. that kind of thing. We obviously have encryption export controls that you always have to deal with as yep. well. The reality is that, you know, while we will customize and localize uh, some of our licenses, some of our uh, documentation, sure. Uh, you know, the reality is what you're getting here in the U.S. from us is pretty much the same you're getting anywhere else. Sure. I mean, we want it to be a uniform, uh, consistently reliable, consistently known product. Yep. So it's very important we be able to deliver software seamlessly across borders mm-hmm. without having to develop unique products. You know, that certainly I think one area that we watch very carefully is, you know, our government's potentially uh, uh, requiring technical mandates for software that... Uh, not only make it difficult to have a uniform product across borders, but also potentially risks the reliability and trustworthiness as well. Right. So that's something that cuts this across. Is a backdoors issue? But you can call it the backdoors issue. Yeah. That's the most prominent one. Yeah. Uh, certainly one that is the most visible. Yeah. But it's about whether, you know, uh, if we are, you know, standards do play an important role. Sure. But let's, let's rely on the industry consensus voluntary process that's open and transparent. Uh, not on sort of you know let's uh, sit down and cut a deal about what's going on in software. Yeah, no, I think that I think that makes sense. So, uh, you know, Red Hat, as you said, is a publicly traded company, so they've got to make quarterly quarterly marks. But they also, I suspect, have a big chunk of R and D and some other folks who are looking down the road. So I've asked a few other people this question, but what do you, when you talk to your engineers, when you talk to your your geeks, what are the what what do they see that's coming down the road that maybe people haven't thought of yet? Yeah, the amazing thing about Red Hat is I I uh, work with a lot of uh, brilliant people who come from a lot of diverse backgrounds, and so you know our engineers, our product and business execs come from a variety of backgrounds as mm-hmm. well. Just like we were ten or fifteen years ago, the disruptive force in the software industry. Sure. We're also watching to see who the next disruptive force is. Huh. And seeing what it means, you know, is the delivery of software changing through things like containers or things like that? There are a variety of ways in which we're walking, looking to make sure that we are staying uh, abreast of the developments, uh, that we are innovating as fast as the new guys yeah. and girls who are coming up uh, mm-hmm. through the process. So uh, the good news is a lot of that diversity comes from people who are very involved in very different communities and projects. And they bring that experience and knowledge to Red Hat, which is often, you know, discussed through uh, public, uh, not public, but uh, widely uh, used uh, uh, discussion lists inside Red Hat. which oh, have been Our CEO has talked about something like this. So, you know, the good news is there are a lot of people with ideas and the cha- challenge is 
where do we live in all of that? And good news, that's uh, we have great execs who are thinking through all those <laughs> yeah. things. So it's just it's interesting as you go from you know you said you went from startup to a building <clears throat> near the near the governor's mansion. Yes. Uh, here's another question for you because I I work with other companies that are not Silicon Valley based. Right. Does that give you advantages, disadvantages? Um, I'm, I'm sure it's both. Um, but you're in North Carolina. Yeah. I, I think it's, well, first of all, it's the reality of who we are. Sure. Certainly when we recruit people to come to Raleigh, you know, the housing prices in Raleigh are very advantageous to uh, what is in Silicon Valley. But it's also uh, great to be in a place that uh, I think reflects a broader swath of America as well. North Carolina is a fascinating state right now in so many ways. Um so I think it's a great place to attract people. Yep. Uh, we went into our tower building, I think now four years ago, five years ago. Yep. We're bursting at the seams. I, I think it's a great place to recruit people and lifestyle. I like living in Washington, so <laughs> I'm happy to let others move to Raleigh. But you know, it's a great place to attract and sort of stand out from the crowd a little bit. Yeah, find- even, even though half the world thinks we're in Silicon Valley, <laughs> I have to explain, no, we're actually in Raleigh. Yeah. But we're also very distributed. I mean, we have one of our largest facilities in uh, right outside Boston. Yep. Um, you know, we have a large engineering facility in Bruno, Czech Republic. So we're we're also distributed around the world about what we do. Yeah, I just, I always wonder um, the balance between uh, kind of being in the pool with everybody, like, you know, kind of right next to each other or being in your own pool. And I'm sure that there's obviously, you know, goods and bads. And as you said, it is what it is. I'd like to be taller too, but. Exactly right. (laughs) I ask this to everybody who comes on this podcast. We all have coffees with folks in Uh town, uh, whether we're looking for job advice or or whatever. Um, So if you had the, you know, your schedule clears up this afternoon and you can, you could have coffee with anybody today. With anybody, wow. Um, We've had, now to give you, to give you a background, we've had dead people, we've had live people, we've had presidents and former presidents. Uh, who would it be and why? Wow. So I actually have, can I have three coffees? Can I sure. give you three names? Yeah, sure. Uh, the first two would probably want to have whiskey, but not, <laughs> but not coffee. So uh, uh, reflecting my, my Texas roots, um, I'd love to have coffee or probably whiskey with Sam Houston. Um, I think he's one of the underappreciated political leaders that helped define our country at a very interesting time between 1830 and 1860. To my knowledge, he is the only um, person to have served as governor of two states, member of the House from two states, a senator, and the president of a nation. Uh, The second one, who actually is a very distant relative, uh, is John Marshall Harlan, the great dissenter in Plessy v. Ferguson, who wrote the famous... Sure, right. Uh, separate but equal is inherently unequal. And he's known as the great dissenter because he dissented from a number of the Supreme Court cases of that period that were fairly not progressive, shall we say. Sure. He must have been crazy as a loon. But uh, it would be interesting to talk to him being, you know, the one on an 8-1 decision in yeah. so many historically significant cases. Um, and then a complete shift to show you my kind of current interest is I'd love to have coffee uh, with Lisa Fisher, uh, the singer. Huh. One of my favorite movies is 20 Feet from Stardom, which talks about the role of backup singers. And so it was a portrait of a woman named Mary Clayton, who was most famously the voice, background female voice in Give Me Shelter, the Rolling Stone movie. Yeah, of course. Darlene Love, you know. And Lisa is kind of the most prominent of them. And she has been the female tour with the Rolling Stones since 1989. And she just sounds like this fascinating person. And she decided she did not want to be the person up front. Oh, she wanted to be in the backup. 
Well, and I think maybe if Mick Jagger's up front, you know, absolutely. maybe it's probably better to be behind. But she just, you know, she comes across as just this fascinating person and a uh, very nice person and very talented. So those are the three people. First two would probably want to have whiskey, not coffee. <laughs> I suspect Lisa would probably want to have tea. Is, <laughs> That's is fine. Guess, so. That's fine. You're taking some liberties with the coffee. I am taking okay. some liberties with the coffee. Um, Mark Bohannon uh, from Red Hat, uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you. This and is fun. We appreciate you coming into 14th and G. Always a pleasure, sir. I want to thank Mark Bohannon for coming in here to 14th and G. Um, it's always fun to talk to him. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, um, if you are interested in listening to Mark's boss, uh, Red Hat CEO Jim Whitehurst, he's in an event here in D.C. at 1776 on March 6th. Email me if you'd like an invite. My email address is wooters at mc-dc.com. Thanks a lot for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time at the intersection of business and policy right here at 14th and Street.